0: civility. A lot of times when we talk politics, um, it flies out the window. And just as a reminder, here's what we're doing. We're, we're in the middle of our series on uh, what the Bible... Ha- Actually, we're getting close to the end of our series on what the Bible has to say about politics. And we're going through this and, and uh, we're, we're, we're taking a look at what God has for us in terms of how we engage in the political process. Uh, we're, we're taking a look at um, some of the specific questions that you've had about how we're supposed to respond when it comes to things. And today we get to this where you've had a couple of specific questions okay? about in light of the fact that we're Christians, how is it that we are supposed to handle a couple of these things in the world today? And we're going to talk about those, um, but I'm going to tell you as we get going, we'll get to those questions um, as we, as we move in, in the sermon, but we're going to take a look at what God has to say, uh, first and foremost, about the issue of civility. Because what we're going to see is that the way that we respond to things um, is sometimes more important than anything else. We'll, we'll get there. Trust me. Here we go. Let's start with this. Um, as I turn my clicker on, there we go the Civility Project. In January 2009, there were two politicians, one from each side of the aisle, uh, the the Republican, Mark DeMoss, and Democrat, Lanny Davis, uh, and they emailed or sent this letter out to all 100 senators, 435 um, House of Representatives, and 50 governors. So, I'm sorry, 585 politicians received this and asked them to sign this civility pledge. Here's all it says. I will be civil in my public discourse and behavior. We have a problem with that? No, that seems reasonable. I will be respectful of others, whether or not I agree with them. Seems reasonable. And I will stand against incivility when I see it. And so sent those out to 585, all of the politicians in Washington, asked them to sign it. Guess how many signed? Three. Three. Three politicians agreed to sign that pledge. See, because in the world's view, in the way we've been discipled in the political process, the louder you are, the more confrontational you are, the more jabs you throw, the more truth you twist, the more personal you get, the more effective you are. See, and that's, that's what we've been discipled to in the culture that we live in. But Jesus, of course, calls us to be countercultural in the way that we do things. And you get that, right? I mean, look at this here in Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. So this is something we understand. That, that, and we talked about the Beatitudes last week, that, that God has specifically called us to be countercultural. The culture says the way that we get our way politically is to make people forcibly, to make people agree with us. We can do that sometimes easily if we have the best argument. But sometimes, when I don't necessarily have the best argument, or when somebody else has a compelling reason to look at something differently, the way that I do that again is I get dirty, I get vicious, I get loud. You ever notice how, when things get heated, voices get louder? It's because we've been discipled. That loud equals compelling. That put downs are a means of expressing truth. And so, ultimately, uh, what we have to understand, though, is that God has called us to better than that. That God has called us to act differently. That God has called us to act counterculturally. And this gets tricky for Christians. It gets tricky for Christians because we've got to do things differently. See, here's the big idea to start with. We talked about this last week. You owe your ultimate allegiance over and above everything else to Jesus Christ. You owe allegiance to Jesus Christ that trumps everything else. It trumps your allegiance to your church. If we get goofy, Jesus first, then the church. It trumps your allegiance to your family. Jesus Christ trumps allegiance to your country. Jesus Christ trumps allegiance to your safety, to your security. Your allegiance to Jesus trumps your rights. This just is what it is, right? And because we owe our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ, we have to think differently about politics than the rest of the world. You get that, right? that when it comes to politics, and again, if there's part of that, that, that's review to a large degree. So if there's part of that where you're thinking, yeah, Matt, but okay, pastor, I hear you, but what about this? I'm going to encourage you. I want you to go back and listen okay, um, to some of these things that we've talked about over the course of this series, because I think that we've looked at enough scripture that it becomes pretty clear that if Jesus is our priority, and oh, by the way, Christian, Jesus must be your priority. And if Jesus is our priority, then necessarily we have to look at politics differently. God has to be able to guide our political thinking. Our political thinking must be framed within the context of what God wants. It's just the way that it works. Okay. So what happens though, and we need to talk socially about what that looks like though. Because what happens is oftentimes then the Christian ends up looking like Will Ferrell at the end of the line. By the way, kicking and screaming, coaching his kid's soccer team, it's, it's not a bad movie, check it out. Okay. But what happens is we end, up, we end up looking like Will Ferrell at the end of the line because we are the ones that are always saying no. We're the ones that are always saying no. We're the ones that are drawing a line in the sand. We're the ones that are saying you can't do that. You know, the way the rest of the world would see it, and you have to kind of understand this, right? We are the ones that are making a stink because the whole world sees an issue this way. The whole world sees that this must be all right, that morality is, you know, it's wishy-washy, right? And so why in the world do we care about this? But yet the church, Christians that understand what God wants, that understand that we must represent God when it comes to our politics, we stand back here and we say, no, that's not right. And so the world looks at us, as hard to get along with. The world will look at us as people that are always trying to make us stink, people that are always trying to to force our way, okay? And the reality is, we kind of are, but there's a way to do it that's appropriate, and there's a way to do it that ends up being counterproductive, okay? And so we're going to get into that a little bit today, and we're going to take a look at what God has to say, but first things first, just a reminder, we must be civil. Civil is... Formal politeness and courtesy in speech and action. It's refusing to take cheap shots. Being civil means that even though I strongly disagree with the position that you have, that I'm not going to make it about you. I'm going to make it about your position. Being civil means that I'm not going to call names being civil means that I'm not going to put you down so that I could advance my own agenda. Being civil means I'm simply going to keep it about the issue and why what God says should be right. See, we kind of we gasped. We're like, well, how come the politicians wouldn't sign that? We went back, we put the civility project up there. It was like, this is what we asked them to do. 585 of them. We asked them to be civil to one another, to show respect. And to stand against incivility when it happens, three said yes, and we're like, that's terrible. Look at your Facebook feed. I'm not sure we get to tell them that that's terrible. Listen to the things that we say on talk radio. I'm not sure we get to be mad at them for being insane. See, here's the problem. The world looks at us like we're Will Ferrell at the end of the line demanding our own way. Don't act like it! See, I had, I had this debate with someone not so long ago, and it was, a, it was a civil debate. It absolutely was. It happens when you debate your mother. They're always civil when you have debates with your mother, and you're an adult. When I was a kid, we had plenty of, of the other kind. But as an adult, and and, and part of her concern, and I, I get her concern, we were talking about um just we we're talking about homosexuality. Okay? And and you know, my mother's a Christian woman, and we both come down on this issue in the same place, we see it the same way, but her concern was what happens politically. And and when Christians demand certain laws, and perhaps some of you have felt that way. I know I have in the past. There's been moments in the past where I've thought to myself, um, you know, self, here's the deal. I know what God says. I will never tell anybody that what God says is different, but yet, how loving is it for me to say to someone else that you have to think the way I think? And so there's this debate, and I I, I get it. We can have more conversation about that before. We've talked about that before. Go back and listen to sermons that have addressed that topic, and um, you can find out why I think it's necessary for Christians to stand that line. Okay. But her, her thought process was simply this. Her thought process was that there's a fear that when Christians draw a line in the sand, that we end up looking like these folks. That when we draw a line in the sand and we say, no, God has a clear understanding of this, and he says no, and so therefore the Christians, whose politics must be framed by what God says, there's no way around it, the politics must be framed by what God says, so therefore we must say that this is wrong, we must not normalize something that God says is sin, so we draw that line, okay? And we do it kindly, we do it respectfully, but her concern is the church ends up looking like this, okay? And and these, of course, are are, um, goofy protesters who think that they're doing God's work, but are really being counterproductive, okay, are really, um, they're not loving anybody to Jesus, I can promise you that. There is nobody looking at those signs and saying, well, man, I got to meet this Jesus. There is nobody that's having a look at that and going, man, boy, Jesus has really changed those people for the better. I need to get on board with what they got. That's not happening. Okay. What's happening though is that incivility has now become the tone. And so her fear is that. But here's what we can say. Listen, church, this is what we always have to be able to come back to. This is what we have to be able to say. We can draw a line and say truth is truth. We can draw a line and say here is the politics that I support. These are the candidates that I support. Here are the reasons why. Here are the positions that we're about. And we can do that in a way that is civil, that is filled with grace, in a way that doesn't look like that. In fact, we have to do it in a way that doesn't look like that. By the way, that is spewing hate. We don't spew hate. We draw lines. We share facts, but we must remain civil. And we do it because here's what God says in Romans 12:18. He says, look, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, well, that indicates that sometimes it might not be possible. Okay? We'll acknowledge that. Sometimes maybe it won't be possible, but as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peter tells us in in 2 Peter that we do that, right, so that it's to the shame of those that are outside the church. When they accuse us of things, we have, as far as it depends on us, we've lived at peace with everyone, and it shames those outside of the church that want to heap accusations on us, that want to say, "You know what? You guys are just like these people." No, right? You can say it, but it won't be true because we are civil and we are full of grace, and that's what God calls us to do. And we see that so clearly. And we're going to get into uh, to second. We're going to get it. We're going to get into Second Timothy. Uh, chapter 2, we're going to look at 6 verses, actually 7 verses, 20 through 26, okay, and we're going to break this down and see what he has to say. Uh, this is Paul writing to Timothy about the church, Okay, so this is instructive for us as we go, um, and, and so he starts off with this, and you're going to be like, Matt, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Trust me, it's going to be okay. Let's walk through this together. Here's what he says. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be the instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And so right now you're thinking, okay, Matt, that's great. What in the world do bowls and spoons have to do with anything? Well, I get it. You're making a mistake in translation, okay, in understanding. Uh, You got to remember that Paul, a Jew is writing, okay, now, now a Christian Jew is writing, and he's using this imagery of the way that God had special articles set aside in worship at the temple. So there were special articles that were to be reserved for worship in the temple, and then there were regular articles to just use all the time. So there were bowls that I would use when I wanted to eat chili. Come on, everybody loves chili, okay, and it... I'm not sure about Paul there. He doesn't like chili. Um, He's going to tell me that he hates football. Okay. Anyway, there are bowls that I would use for my everyday use, right? But then there are bowls that I have set aside that I will use for my special worship, right? These are special. They're set aside for a special purpose. I'm not going to use them for chili, right? But I'm going to save them and I'm going to pull them out and use them for worship. You know what it's like? It's like your fancy china. Who's got fancy china? Raise your hand. It's okay. All right, now in your brain, think of the last time you used your fancy china. Raise your hand if it's been over five years. Almost all of you. Raise your hand if you've never used it. Right? I see. That's what it is. It's like that. Okay, but now Paul's not writing to the Jews about how to have worship at the temple. Paul's writing to Timothy and here. He's talking about how they are. So this is a metaphor that they would have easily understood. He's like, listen to me. He's like... In this church, in God's church, some of you, okay, are going to be regular everyday people. But when you stop being regular everyday people, when you stop using it for that common stuff, get yourself cleaned up, then you're going to be instruments set aside for a special purpose. Then you're going to be prepared to do the good works That God has for you. There's something you need to drill down on here. Hey, can you earn your salvation? No, we've talked about this time and time again. Be clear with me. You cannot earn your salvation. You do not bring anything to you, with you, to the foot of the cross. There is nothing worthwhile that you've done to the foot of the cross. With all due respect to your religious service, with all due respect to your religious activities, with all due respect to your your um, prayer at the altar, to your baptism, to your first communion, to your confirmation—none of that in itself—it's all good, by the way—but none of it in and of itself will save you. You bring nothing with you to the foot of the cross. But drill down on this next thing—we don't talk about this nearly enough. Effective ministry is earned. Your salvation is a free gift of God for those that choose to have it. Your ability to minister effectively is something that God grants you when you do your part. And that's going to rub some of you the wrong way because you've not heard that before. Partly that's on me. I don't know that I've said it before. Partly it's, it's just on the way that you understand things. But if you want to minister effectively, you've got to do your part. You can't get sucked into the muck of the everyday cultural existence and then expect God to go ahead and bless your ministry. I'm going to go ahead and be as blunt as I can here. Okay, you're not going to watch porn every day of the week and then show up at church on Sunday and say, okay, God, make me an awesome minister for you. You're not going to spew hate to people you don't like, staunchly refuse to forgive, refuse to share the gospel, show up on Sunday and say, but I want to be a great Sunday school teacher. It doesn't work. This is what he's saying here. He's saying, look, in a large house, there are articles, right? The articles belong in the house. Okay? But if you want to have a special purpose, if you want to be useful for God, then put that other stuff away and grow in this. That's, look, this is what Timothy said the next verse. So, okay, this is in the continuation here. He's like, then you'll be, you'll be cleansed, you'll be ready to go, God will use you, so flee. Flee evil desires of youth. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That's that's the call. That's what we're asked to do. He says, look, I want you to be set aside for a special purpose, okay? So get cleansed, and then flee all that nonsense, and be ready to be an effective minister. And look, here's the deal. That includes political ministry. See, all of you that want to get political, fine, fine. Get political, but understand that it's ministry if you're a Christian. See, some of you here today might not be a Christian, and then you're like, okay, Hans, you're not making any sense to me, and I will grant you that this will sound very strange. Those of you, however, that are here today that are in Christ must understand that when you are doing things as a Christian, because that is your foundation, right? It's not something that you take out of the closet and put on every once in a while. It's not something you, you leave at home on certain occasions. It's who you are So therefore, as a Christian, when you get politically active, you are a political minister of God's grace. So your political action is political ministry. And if we want to be effective in ministry, then these are the things that we do. We flee evil desires of youth. We flee the idea that we need to get our way at all costs. We flee the idea that as long as my side ends up on top, that I'm righteous somehow, or that the ends justify the means. Read through Scripture and show me one, one, one time where Jesus indicates that the ends justify the means. You're going to be hard-pressed. We continue. Says, don't have anything. Oh, by the way, and some of you were thinking, okay, Matt, but what does that have to do with being civil? You're like, flee evil desires of youth and all that stuff. Well, you know what? Look at what he says next. Says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. I love it when the Bible uses the word stupid, because then it means I can use it without feeling mean. Some of your arguments are stupid, and I can say that because God did. See, that wasn't civil. I'm sorry. Man, this is hard. It says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, and not resentful. So here we, we get into this even further, and what we're reading is that there's an issue. And the issue that we have is these arguments that we get into, and it's the way that we present our argument, it's the way that the world sees us. And and, and God says, look, yeah, I get that you have to draw a line. By the way, the context of this is all about in right teaching versus wrong teaching. That's that's what this whole context is. It's about people that would say, well, God says, when no, he doesn't. Right? It's about people that said, "Um, oh, the resurrection's already happened, you guys missed it. Right, so that's the con. You're like, man, and, and but I, uh, we've got serious issues. They had serious issues, right? Some of them were telling them that they were all destined for hell because the resurrection had already happened. They weren't on that train, so I guess you guys better just you know pack it in. Okay, we think we got issues. They had issues that they were trying to work through in the church and in the culture. Okay, but that's what this is. So in this context, he says, look, don't have anything to do with those foolish and stupid arguments. You know why? Because when you argue. You know what it turns into? Okay, It turns into quarreling. And I love the connection. Don't miss the connection. Please, 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 please see the connection. See what it says. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Why? Okay, Because you must not be quarrelsome. Foolish and stupid arguments always lead to fights. And for Christians, we may not enter a debate or a discussion thinking, hey, let's fight about this. I'm terrible at this. How easy do you get sucked in? I mean, I get sucked in. You know, it's not that there's anything wrong with a debate. Debates are good. Debates that are handled where everybody is appropriate. Debates that are handled with love and grace. And by the way, you can have debates with people that have foundationally different understandings. You can have those debates with people, and they can still. Be pleasant and positive. i tell you what, every time I have a debate with my brother, we've talked about my brother. Hi, Mike. He usually listens. Um, We've talked about my brother. I've asked you to pray for my brother. He's on my list. Um, He knows that, and he doesn't care, I don't think, um, that we talk about. I mean, he doesn't care that we talk about him. Um, At least he never says he does. But I enjoy having debates with Mike because I honestly can say that I get to see his heart and his passion and as misguided as I think it is, It's never uncivil. It's never not grace-filled. See, so nowhere in this process are we saying agree with people that, that you disagree with. We're never saying agree with somebody who's telling you something that's wrong, but there's a difference between having a discourse and getting sucked into foolish and stupid arguments, okay? And notice the connection. When you get sucked into foolish and stupid arguments, what are you losing the ability to do? You're losing the ability to be kind and you're losing the ability to teach. It's the clear connection to what Paul's saying right here. When you get sucked into foolish and stupid arguments and you get quarrelsome, you are no longer, you are no longer demonstrating the ability to be kind okay, and to be an excellent teacher. And if you are not able to teach... Then, how in the world do you expect to be an effective minister? How in the world do you expect to have an effective ministry in politics if you're not able to teach? You know what your other option is when you're not able to teach? Shaming, spewing anger, and hate. When you're not able to teach, you're no different than those people with the picket signs. See, that's where they've gone wrong in all of this. They know what God says, but they've lost their ability to stop quarreling and to stay out of the foolish and stupid arguments. And so therefore, they've lost their ability to minister through teaching and through persuasion. They've lost their ability to be kind. And this is where God says no. You can't get sucked in there. He says, so don't. Don't make that mistake. And that word for stupid there, by the way, okay, it's not, um, here, I wrote it down. It's a pie toss, okay? And basically what it means is it's uneducated, okay? Or think of it this way, deceived. Think of that word as meaning deceived, right? So here's the problem. When someone is deceived, My getting mad at them and getting loud and insulting them for being deceived doesn't help. When I get emotionally or verbally or, God forbid, physically violent or aggressive, how in the world am I convincing someone that was deceived to see things differently? All I'm doing is firming up what they thought they knew about us Christians that were argumentative and that were hard to get along with. Doesn't work. Okay? A gentle answer goes a long way to turning away wrath, right? But a harsh word stirs up anger. This is true in our relationships inside the church, but it is definitely true when it comes to these political conversations that we have about what God says and what's right and what's wrong outside the church. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer doesn't have to be an agreeing answer. It doesn't have to be, but a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word will always stir up anger. So we continue 2 Timothy, and here's what he says as he wraps up this chunk. He says, okay, so here's what you do. So we are like, okay, you're like, Matt, that's all fine and good. You're telling me what not to do. What do I do? Well, here's what you do. Opponents that are the people that think differently than you do the people that have a wrong understanding of what God says, or just flat out don't care what God says. And you understand that in this political day and age, if you are a member of this church, odds are you agree with the things that we teach and the things that we preach and the things that we believe in. Okay, Um, If you're a tender of this church, maybe there's a little difference there. But if you are a member, we've gone over this. This is part of the membership class. right? And so if you're a member of this church, here's the deal. You may find yourself having some dialogue with people outside the church who just flat disagree with the Bible. Okay? That discussion is going to look different, isn't it? Because we're coming from a completely different foundation. We have a foundation that says, well, God says this, therefore we have to do it. They have a foundation that says, well, there is no God, certainly not the God of the Bible, so I don't care what the Bible says. Okay? We understand that when we come to dialogue, they're not being any more stubborn than we are being. We just have different understandings. We have an understanding that's rooted in truth. They have an understanding that's rooted in deception. By the way, it is not a smart move to start those conversations by telling them that they're actively being deceived. We're going to chuckle and be like, yeah, yeah, I've made that mistake. Okay, so you can chuckle all you want, but no, you're laughing at me but I'm smarter than I used to be. Okay. But that's what's happening. Okay. But you are going to also have to understand this. There are going to be times when you're going to have to have this discussion with people who believe the Bible, but feel like there's certain things that can be interpreted differently or changed around. If you're like me, that's when it becomes even more difficult to not get sucked into foolish arguments and debates i give you a word of caution about that. It doesn't matter who you're having the conversation with. okay? Somebody that's deceived on a fundamental level, or I'll say it, people can be mad at me later, somebody that's deceived on a biblical level. Deception happens, and your attitude has to be good. Here's what it is. Opponents must be gently instructed. Now, I want you to think about the last couple of things that you posted politically on your social media, and I want you to think about the last few things you said to someone who has a significantly different political view than you do, and I just want you to ask yourself in your head, was that gentle? Was my post gently instructing? Was my Were my words gently instructing, or were they foolish and stupid arguments that lead to quarrels, that take away my ability to teach, and my ability to share truth kindly? Something you need to think about. But opponents must be gently instructed in the hope, here's what's happening, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. Oh my goodness, I know you hate this. You hate this, but I have to remind you. I have to remind you because Paul reminds you. Here's what he's saying here. You are not fighting somebody sitting across from you. When you go to debate, you are not debating that person. They are not your enemy. They're a pawn. They're a pawn in this struggle. Paul tells us why here. Why? Because they're caught in the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Yes, we look at them and we don't see the devil. We don't see the devil pulling the strings like a puppet. We see this person who is vehemently arguing, angrily so, upset, possibly calmly, but they're vehem- Yeah. Okay, get that tone back. I'm going to stand over here. Really loud over there. Um, so here's what happens, right? They're, they're, they're arguing all of this. And we look at them and we see, how are they so stupid? How do they not understand? But Paul here is really mapping this out for us. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they don't understand. It's that they are trapped by the devil who is having them captive to do his will. And you say, but Matt, how is gentle instruction ever going to get that person to agree that they're wrong? How is gentle instruction ever going to train them up? I'm going to tell you this. Your gentle instruction is never going to be good enough. Hear me now. Look at me. Your gentle instruction will never be good enough to change someone's mind. But, good news, it does not have to be. Read again what Paul says. Opponents must be gently instructed. Why? Not because your argument is going to be so convincing that they're going to decide that abortion is now wrong, that God is now right, that there is one Savior. Your gentle instruction is never going to accomplish this, but here's what happens, your gentle instruction helps. And it says, it's the hope that God will grant repentance and God will lead them to a knowledge of truth. And do you know why that's necessary? Because God is the one that is going to be defeating the devil, not you. That's, I mean, that's what this says. This says, look, your argument is on a totally different plane than you thought it was. Those of you that hate Donald Trump, listen to me, you're not fighting with Donald Trump. Those of you that hate Hillary Clinton, you're not fighting with Hillary Clinton. And you can fill in whatever blanks with whatever people you want to there. In the areas, and by the way, both of them have some fine ideas and both of them have some really awful ones. I don't think there's, I mean, we talked about this last week. There is no perfect option. We're always voting for the lesser of two evils because none of them is Jesus, right? Okay, but when we argue against those things, what we're doing is, I'm going to stand still. It's gonna be hard. (laughs) But what we're doing, okay, when we do those things, is, is we're understanding that what we're really arguing with is Satan. What we're really drawing a line against is Satan. And when it comes to Satan, Satan is not going to be moved by my loud words. Satan is not going to be moved by my insults. Satan is not going to be moved by my impassioned pleas. But God is going to do a work in the person that is under deception. And a lot of the way that happens is, according to Paul, and this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God telling us this, the way that that happens is our gentle instruction over time that allows God to perhaps bring repentance to that person and free them from the deception that they're in. So understand this last big idea here. Those with immoral views, they need to be liberated, not insulted. They need to be liberated. And you don't liberate people by yelling at them. You don't liberate people by calling them stupid. You don't liberate people by telling them why they're worthless and terrible. It just doesn't happen. So, that's it. And so in this context, we've we've gone over some of these things, and and now what happens is we have these big questions that a couple of you have asked that we're going to deal with quickly. Um, And here's the big questions. In the context of... Okay, Matt, I'm supposed to be civil. I'm supposed to ooze with grace. It's not my battle to convince them that they're different. It's God's. When it comes to, listen, you want to debate somebody about tax plans, I want you to still gently instruct. I want you to, but don't be confused thinking, well, you know, God must be on my side because of my tax ideas. No, 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 no. We're talking moral issues here. Okay, we're talking moral issues, right? Um, and when it comes to moral issues, we have a plan. And so you've asked the question, and it's a great question. You're like, okay, knowing that I'm supposed to be civil, Knowing that I'm supposed to do certain things, how do I handle some of these hot-button political, cultural issues? One of your questions was this. With the issue of civility in mind, I added that part. Should Christians be boycotting Target and other stores that actively support uh, the LGBTQ and transgender, transgender agendas? That's the question you've asked. Is Okay, Matt. So. Now that Target is on the front lines of saying, we are now being very clear and open about um, transgender folks using whatever restroom they feel like. So on the front lines of that, your question to me is, so do we keep shopping at Target? Or do we boycott Target? What do we do? We're trying to be civil, yet we're supposed to be actively engaged in this. How does this work? And I'm going to tell you, um, first of all, it's not like I have a word from God on this. So I'm not going to tell you that if you disagree with me, somehow you are um, viewing the Bible wrong. Okay, so let's be really clear about that up front. You've asked, I'm going to give you the best answer I can. Okay, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with me. What I'm going to tell you is this, that there are three types of businesses. There are businesses that actively seek to be morally biblical or biblically moral. Think Hobby Lobby. Think Chick-fil-A. There are others that are smaller Okay. But you think those, when, when, when we talk about this, there are, there are some businesses that actively seek to be biblically moral. There are some businesses that actively seek to push social agenda. Okay. Think target. And I'm going to say this and it's a bad, I'm not comparing the two. These are just the two big ones that I think of. Think target, think Planned Parenthood. Okay. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that those are on the same level, just Let's not walk away thinking I said something I didn't, but, but this is what I want you to think. So we've got businesses that, that pursue biblical morality on purpose and churches, or I'm sorry, and businesses that pursue social moralism on purpose. These guys want to set a trend in being biblically moral. These guys want to send a trend in being um, social, socially progressive. And then what you've got is the third kind of business that's in the middle which is businesses that are just trying to stay open. <laughs> they just want to sell their stuff. They want to fix your plumbing. They, they, want, they, want to, they want to make money and stay open and feed their families and send their kids to college and make sure their employers are taken care of. And frankly, they don't have the size money or the legal team to worry about this over here and to try to set trends. And, uh, but they're not interested in being on this end of the agenda. But ultimately, all they're worried about is following the law so that they can stay open. And what I'll say to you is that when you go shopping, when you choose to support certain businesses by the way that you spend your dollars, if it were me, I would certainly keep in mind um, that there are some businesses that are more biblically accurate, that are more biblically astute. And so the majority of my resources, if I, if I have I, I mean, I'm, here's the thing. I'm not going to go to Chick Fil A, right? When I'm not hungry. I'm not going to say, "Well, they're they're a Christian business, so I need to give them business, even when I don't need that business." I'm not going. Listen, I'm not going to go to Hobby Lobby ever. <laughs> I mean, let's just get real. But that's cool because I'm not going to Bed Bath and Beyond either, or whatever their competition is. I don't know. Give me something. Michaels. Michael. There you go. I'm not going. I don't know, right? But you know what I do need occasionally? I do need canvases to paint on. Not for me. Some of you thought you were about to be really impressed, weren't you? (laughs) Aubrey takes art lessons. She needs canvases. When I need canvases, if I have a choice, if Hobby Lobby is here and Michael's is here and Hobby Lobby supports a Christian agenda, Michael's They're not against a Christian agenda. They're not against, they're they're just trying to stay open. Well, you know what? I probably will choose Hobby Lobby. Makes sense, doesn't it? Okay. I've got Target here who wants to be on the front end of social relativism, and I've got another store that's just trying to do business. Again, I, I. We'll choose the other store that's just trying to do business. You do what seems right to you, but I would encourage you to be thinking of it in terms of you've got these three types of different businesses that need support. Okay, Some of you are thinking, I can read your mind, okay, you're thinking, but what is my business really going to make a difference? I don't know what your business will really make a difference. I don't know what your But here's the thing. Part of what you're worried about is social change. Part of what you're worried about is drawing a line that says, this can't be normative because God says no. And part of what you're worried about is your conscience. So you got to decide, okay? But here's the encouragement I'll give you. Decide quietly and act quietly. Decide quietly and act quietly. Let your business speak for itself. And if somebody asks you, hey, how come you don't go to Target anymore? Well, you can share with them gently. Not getting engaged in foolish and stupid arguments and quarreling. You can explain to them gently why you've decided to give your business to another place. But let your business speak for itself. Okay? There's one other thing I'll say here about this transgender bathroom issue. And this is a place where I've been embarrassed by us. I'm going to be just bluntly honest with you. What's our issue? Is our issue that there's a woman that wants to dress like a man or a man that wants to dress like a woman or is our issue that God says no? Too many of us have made that issue about something it's not. I know that because I read things like, well, um, you know, if... Somebody that's dressed like a a man, that's really a woman, or wants to go in this bathroom, and you know, then I'm going to stand guard and punch them out, and well, I identify as the tooth fairy, so I will give them my, you know, really? You know what you're saying there, right? Is that everyone that's a transgender must necessarily be a pedophile. That's why they struggle with that issue, and, and therefore, when they're interested in going to a different bathroom, it's because they want to abuse your children, have nothing to do with foolish and stupid arguments that lead to quarreling. Everything that you draw a line on in the sand, if it's a social issue where you must draw a line, you draw a line there because God does. You don't have a right to draw any other line. The answer to this is no, because God says so. Not because of a personal attack on any person who is deceived and is entrapped by the enemy and that needs to be liberated, we are better than that. Another question that we have to deal with is this, should Christians refuse services to the LGBTQ clients? Um, Think wedding photographers, think caterers, um, bakers, those things, and we've seen this in the news, and so some of you are asking the question, is that right or wrong? And some of you even asked it this way, you're like, well, Jesus, he had dinner with sinners, Right? That was his calling card. He was the friend of sinners. He hung out where they hung out. So therefore, is it right for the church to say, yeah, we're going to, you know, no, we're not going to have any part of it. Here, here's what I'll say. Um, I get the argument and it's, but it's different. Okay. So are you ready for my answer? Yes. And no. Okay. Thank you. We're done. No, that's not, but the answer is yes and no. The answer is, I can't tell you what God lays on your heart. Perhaps if you're, in, if you're a photographer and you have the opportunity to um, be a photographer at a wedding for a homosexual couple and you choose to do that, I'm not going to be mad at you for doing that. I'm going to ask you why and I'll be looking for a very specific answer. Okay. If you're a photographer, or a caterer, and you choose not to cater food for the wedding of a homosexual couple, I'm not gonna be mad at you for saying no, but I'm gonna ask you why, and here's the issue. You better have the right answer. Not for me, but for God. You better have the right answer, okay? If you choose to not, okay, then you're choosing to not, not because you have an issue with homosexuality, but because God does, not because you think That's gross, but because God says no, that's it. If you choose to say no to that, by the way, if you choose not to cater, uh, I'm going to be, okay, let's deal with this. If you choose not to cater the wedding of the homosexual couple, fine. But then morally speaking, you probably need to choose not to cater the party at the house of the couple that's living together, but not married. And I can hear you. But you're like, but Matt, when I cater the party at the house of the couple that's not married, that's my way of loving them. That's my way of showing Jesus to them. That's my way of trying to get into their lives so that I can encourage them with truth and gently instruct. And okay, that's great. But why can't you do it here? So I'm going to say the answer is yes and no. If you're saying yes I I can be a part of those things so that I can be Jesus to those people, then fine. But do not fail to be Jesus to people that are in sin. Do not fail to gently instruct where you have earned the right to do so. Because if you're failing to do that, then your whole argument was bogus. But if your answer is no, fine. But then don't get caught in this game of making one sin worse than another sin. Because then your whole argument is bogus. Everything we do, we do civilly, we do what God lays on our heart, and we follow through. So again, I can't answer these questions for you with a yes, this is right, or no, this is wrong, or either way. What I can tell you is that there's a way to think biblically. And as long as you are all about showing Jesus, and you're always doing what God lays on your heart, then you are going to be okay. Okay. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because, I mean, this is all about Jesus. Everything we do is about Jesus. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get ready to take communion here, and, and I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. And as the elders come forward and prepare to, to deliver the elements for communion, here's what I'm going to tell you. Okay, I'm going to say this. It's all always about Jesus. The goal in all of this... Is always to share Jesus. As soon as sharing Jesus stopped being your goal, you stopped being on mission. As soon as politically moving in a direction where we can share Jesus freely is not your goal, you've stopped being on mission. As soon as the words you say or the actions you do, whenever any of it stops being about sharing Jesus, then you have lost your way. I know I said that twice. I'm going to say it again. When you stop being about sharing Jesus, you are off. This isn't compartmentalized. This is supposed to ooze from you. This is who you are. You are about sharing Jesus. And when you are not about sharing Jesus, you are off because here is the reality. Everyone Everyone, every one of us, I don't care if you're Republican or a Democrat, if you're straight, if you're gay, if you're rich, you're poor, you're a man, you're a woman, I don't care. Every one of us is broken. And every one of us is in need of redemption. Redemption is found freely at the foot of the cross, and for those of us that have found it, The one who gave it to us has given us a very clear mandate to be about giving it to other people. That's it. That's what this is all about. We are broken. Jesus made a way for us to be right. And then he says, so I have a job for you to do. Week one of this series, you are ambassadors of grace. Be about that work. If you are not about the cross, then I am uninterested in your political ideas as a Christian. If you're not about the cross as a Christian, then you have have no right to speak for the church when it comes to your political ideas. If you're not about grace, then you don't have a right to speak for the church. Because this is what we're about. And so as we celebrate this today, I want to encourage you to remember what it is that we need to be about. I'm going to remind you when it comes to communion that we celebrate open communion which simply means that you do not need to be a member of our church, only that we ask that you be a member of the kingdom, that you be a Christian. This is, a, this is, this is an activity for those who are Christians. And here's what I'll remind you of, okay? I'll remind you the same thing that, that um, Paul reminded to the church in Corinth as he was instructing them. He said, look, here's how we do it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it And he said, This is my body, it is broken for you. And that literally was about to happen. His body was going to be beaten, broken, nailed to a cross, so that he would suffer and die as the sacrifice for our sins. That's it. And then he took the drink and he poured it. He said, This is my blood, it's poured out for you. It's a sign of the new covenant. And we know that that's exactly what happened with his blood. His blood covers sin. And so when we come to the foot of the cross, we find salvation and redemption. Let that be a reminder to you today as you come to communion. And again, as you come to communion today and you celebrate what Jesus has done for us in bringing us new life, for those of us that have accepted him and that follow him and that have submitted to him, remember that this is absolutely what we're about as Christians. And if this isn't what we're about, then we're in danger of doing it wrong. Pray with me. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for salvation that's found through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Father, we pray that you will help us as Christians to have that be our primary foundational goal in everything that we do, that it's all about sharing Jesus. Whether it's, it's going to work every day, it's in our marriage or our parenting, Father, if it's, if it's just in the way that we interact with, with the friends and the people around us or even the way that we get involved politically, Father, we pray that you'll remember or that you'll remind us, you'll help us remember that it's all about the cross. It's all about what you accomplished on the cross. Father, burn that into our hearts as we celebrate communion this morning. We thank you and we love you. Amen.